0: Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 22 in the book of Hebrews titled The Mediator of the New Covenant, where we discuss Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 22. I am Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, we are continuing to work through chapter 9. We began by talking about the vessels used in worship and the instrumentation for the tabernacle, and then we went on to talk about how Christ appeared. The last podcast, we talked about how he appeared in the greater and more perfect tent in the heavens. And then in, in this section, we learned that he is this mediator of a new covenant. Can you give us a brief overview of what we're going to find here?
1: Absolutely. The uh, overall theme of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ and the covenant he comes to bring. As we've said, it's kind of a three-part um uh, outline, which is a, a superior mediator, Jesus Christ, brings us a superior covenant, the new covenant, resulting in a superior life, which is the life of faith or a heavenly life here on earth, uh, ultimately uh, that we end up in heaven, but the life that we live here on earth based on faith. So you have Hebrews 11, the faith chapter that talks about you know how, how uh, a life of faith looks. And so uh, the author is uh, zeroing in in this chapter on the second aspect, which is the superior covenant. He's already established the supremacy of Christ from the very beginning of the book of Hebrews. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That's Jesus uh, and then he shows how he's superior to angels, superior to um, you know, every hero in the Old Testament, whether Moses or Abraham or, or uh, the Levitical priest, Aaron, in every respect superior. And now we've been working through the superiority of the new covenant. The old covenant was an inferior covenant, which has now been made obsolete. It's an obsolete covenant based on animal sacrifice. But now the new covenant is based on a superior covenant, or superior sacrifice, the blood of a, a single sacrifice, once for all. And this Hebrews 9 is the, is the number one theme, is Jesus died once for all, never to be repeated. And so that's superior in every respect. So we're going to develop that a little more today.
0: Right. Now for the sake of our audience, I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 22. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant So, Andy, my first question to you is, I want to know how this section relates to the previous, because we start with a therefore. Um, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So, what is the therefore, therefore?
1: Well, we're in the, right in the middle of an unfolding argument, and the author is, is showing that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, and he came as a, a great and final high priest and offers his own blood, And so he had been making the comparison between the blood of goats and bulls, animals, uh, how they were in some sense effective uh, in sanctifying old covenant uh, worshipers. Uh, He says in verse 14, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from from acts that produce death or uh, dead acts, so that we may serve the living God. Therefore, or for this reason, Christ is a mediator of a new covenant. In other words, that we may be truly forgiven, truly set free from our sins, and truly set up in that life of faith by which we can now serve the living God. So that's the link between 14 and 15.
0: Right, now what is a mediator? I know this is huge in the ministry of Moses and obviously Jesus, the superior mediator. What is a mediator and what is his role here?
1: Sure. A mediator would be a go-between, somebody who represents uh, both parties. Uh, like uh, Job says, oh, that there would be someone who would stand between me and God, someone who could lay a hand on us both and uh, re- represent me to God and represent God to me. No, I think no one in history has pictured this for us better than Moses on Mount Sinai, where the people were terrified of the voice of God and asked Moses to go up the mountain on, on their behalf and represent them to God. And God said that was a good thing. I wish that they would always fear me like this. And Moses went up into the cloud and had fellowship with God and received the Ten Commandments, received the words of God written on, on tablets of stone with the finger of God and brought them down to the people. That's a very good picture of a mediator, a go-between representing both.
0: Right. And so why do we have such a need for a mediator? And, and what is the advantage of having Jesus Christ as our mediator?
1: Right, well, we need a mediator because uh, we need someone to fulfill that role, someone to represent God to us, to speak the words of God to us, lest we die. Uh, We need somebody who can explain God to us and represent God and, I don't know, exegete God to us, interpret God to us. And then we need someone who will stand on our behalf, who is one of us, and represent us to God. And no one can do that like Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, the God-man, who can fully represent God to us and fully uphold everything that his father wants him to do and be and say, perfectly honoring his father, but then also as a human representing us to God and stand really ultimately as the perfect Adam, the perfect human and can represent us and in him we are saved. So he ends up being the only one who possibly could stand as a mediator between us and God.
0: Now it says he's the mediator of a new covenant, and we've talked a lot about the new covenant, I don't want to rehash all the details right now, but just taking a step back, um, why why is there a need for a covenant in general? You know, We see this language all scripture, God making a covenant, He says, I will make a covenant with you and your offspring, speaking to Abraham. Why does God take the initiative to make a covenant with us?
1: Well, I really think it's just a teaching tool. Uh, it's something that enables us to understand God's dealings with us, to give us confidence uh, so what is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement, a binding agreement between two or more parties. That's what a covenant is. It's a, it's a, legal, a legally binding agreement. Um, and so God uses this kind of construct, this kind of human construct, to give us a sense of really of certainty, of assurance uh, that he will not break his promises. Uh, so, for example, you see a, a very clear example of this with the covenant that God made to Abram in Genesis 15, where God had made him a promise that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and also that he would give him the land. And Abraham said to God, how can I know for certain that I will receive it? Uh, There was no indication that he would either have these uh, numerous descendants, he had none through his barren wife, Sarah, and that's the very chapter where it says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed the promise concerning the multiple descendants. But then there was a the second aspect of the promise, which is the promised land. And there's no evidence that he was going to get that. And he, he, he said, how, how will I know that I will receive it? And the answer was, I'm going to cut a covenant for you. I'm going to make a covenant. And so the covenant seems to be a teaching tool to give us assurance or a sense of certainty And so in the providence of God, humans uh, crafted covenants with each other. The most significant in our time is the marriage covenant, It's a binding agreement between a man and a a woman and, and God that they will be married together. So God took Abraham out of his uh, tent and had him look at the stars so shall the offspring be and then how shall I know and then God said go bring me some animals basically they're used to the animal sacrifice um, and he uh, Abraham cut those animals apart and that's the verb used you cut a covenant um, in the Hebrew and so they would separate the pieces of the animal and the the covenant that was the ceremony included walking between the pieces of the animal And so the two individuals that were making a covenant were basically saying, may I be blown to bits if I break this covenant? That's really what's going on. Well, God appears in the form, uh, the symbolic form of a blazing fire pot and passes alone, not with Abraham, but alone through the pieces. Effectively, remember the question Abraham asked, how do I know? How will I know I'm going to receive the land? God says, I'm going to make a unilateral covenant with you And I'm going to pass through alone myself. Effectively, I'm saying, may I cease to exist as Almighty God if I don't keep this promise, if I don't keep this covenant. So I think the covenant is to give us a sense of certainty that God will keep his promise. And so he uses this covenant language. And so there are different covenants throughout the Bible. There's the the covenant he made with Noah. There's a covenant made with Abraham. There's a Mosaic covenant. Um, And then there is this sense of uh, one final, last, overarching, timeless covenant, what the author calls in chapter 13, the blood of the eternal covenant. There's this eternal covenant by which sinners are made right with God. I think it happened between God the Father and God the Son before the foundation of the world that he would choose the elect and he would uh, name them to be his adopted children uh, and that Christ would die in their place on the cross for their sins His blood shed for them and that the Holy Spirit would regenerate them in due time, and that they would be his people forever. That's the eternal covenant the author speaks
0: of. So. Amen. Um, just continuing on in this verse, he says, you spoke of the elect. He says, so that those who are called, that be the elect, may receive the promise eternal inheritance. So again, there's that eternal language we saw, the, the blood of the eternal covenant, the eternal redemption, and the eternal inheritance. Now, he says, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So what does this teach us about saints who lived under the old covenant?
1: Well, we believe, and it's very clearly taught in Romans chapter 4, that that Old Testament saints were justified the same way as New Testament saints, by hearing and believing the promise uh, from God. Now, the promise unfolded and got more detailed. As time went on, we learned more about the promise. But there was a certain level in redemptive history of where the promise was at, a certain level, and the elect in that generation would believe that level of promise and would be justified or forgiven of their sins. That's how Abraham was justified. That's how David was justified. So Old Testament saints were justified by believing in a Christ who would come later in the exact same kind of mechanism of the way that we believe, sight unseen, in a Christ that came before neither those saints nor us who live today ever saw Jesus. They had to believe ahead of time, and we believe in retrospect or looking back, but it's the same thing. It's by faith.
0: Right. Now, moving from verse 16 and on, he gets into this language of a will, and you know when the will takes effect. He says the will takes effect only at death because it's not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. And, uh, and then he explains that, the Old Covenant was inaugurated with blood. So he talks about Moses, how he sprinkled the blood. What argument is he bringing in here by talking about a will as kind of this last will and testimony or or covenant? Speaking of a covenant in this way.
1: Sure. It's really interesting because the Greek word translated will in some of the translations is translated covenant in other translations. So the theologians and the commentators on Hebrews go back and forth on this. Is it a will? Is it a covenant? And it seems to be both. Uh, and again, it's all a teaching tool. God's trying to explain certain aspects to us. So uh, let's talk about a will, like the last will and Testament. You think about a wealthy individual who has an estate to give, and uh, he draws up the last will and Testament, a legal document, by which he describes what he wants done with his possessions and how he wants his, the inheritance to be given to his heir or his heirs. And so this is laid out in a will. And it only comes in effect in the, at the human level when the one who makes it dies. And so the author's reaching for that analogy concerning the death of Christ. One other thing, though, I want to bring in verse 16. It's, it was necessary to set the heirs free from their sins so that they could receive the inheritance. So think of it this way at the human level. Imagine a wealthy individual has an estate to give, but his heir has been arrested for a serious crime and is in prison. How much of the estate will he receive?
0: Probably nothing. I yeah, guess. Yeah, literally none.
1: He's not going to get to drive the Mercedes. He won't get to swim he in the swimming pool. He might receive the title, but he won't enjoy it. <laughs> he's not. He's not going to be able to receive it. And so the the heirs had to be set free from the prison of sin to be to be qualified to receive an inheritance. So that's what's going on there. But but here he's saying that that. The will is never put into effect unless the one who makes it dies. And so Jesus died to put into effect his last will and testament.
0: Right. Now let's talk about this first covenant and the inaugurating of the first covenant. I know we have spoken in previous podcasts about how the old covenant was a teaching tool to lead us to Christ. What is all of the ceremony with Moses and dipping the blood and sprinkling the people what does this teach us about Jesus Christ's once-for-all sacrifice?
1: Well, I want to make just one other point uh, about one of the differences between the Last Will and Testament language and what happened with Jesus. And, and that is this, um, you know, in, in human experience, when someone makes a Last Will and Testament and they die, clearly they're out of the picture. <laughs> they won't get the mansion anymore. They won't get to drive the Mercedes. They don't get the waterfront property. They're out. They're dead. But Jesus has been raised from the dead. And he is still effectively the heir. We are called co-heirs with Christ. And so we get this inheritance through a living mediator who is also the testator, the one who died, but he has been raised. And so we get all of our inheritance through this eldest son or firstborn son who himself will enjoy it. And ultimately the inheritance is God himself where God said to Abraham, fear not Abraham, I am your shield and I am your very great reward. In other words, I'm what you get in your inheritance. But also we get the new earth, the new heavens and new earth, the land that, that's part of, part of that. Jesus is going to enjoy all of that with us. We're going to enjoy the Father together. So that's the way that this last will and testament language is different. So it's similar. It's an analogy, but it's also different.
0: Right. Well, it sounds much better if he gets to come back to life. <laughs> Absolutely. And
1: we get to enjoy it with him.
0: Yeah. Now, we've spoken before about how the Old Covenant was a type and shadow. And, and we, as, when we talked about the instrumentation of the tabernacle, you were talking about how they all pointed to Christ. I know you've given the uses, the three uses of the animal sacrificial system. Mm-hmm. What is the process that Moses does here, the the dipping of the blood and the sprinkling of the book and the people? What does this teach us about the once-for-all sacrifice that the author of Hebrews is pointing us to with Jesus Christ?
1: Right. I, I think the key word here from verse 18 to verse 22 is the word blood. It's to blood, 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 blood. It says blood over and over. And so that's the link between the idea of the last will and testament and it's necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. And then the link verse in verse 18, he said, this is why even the first covenant was not put into effect. Uh, except with blood. And so the blood is the life of the animal poured out unto death. It's the the wages of sin is death. And so there had to be this blood. And so the author, the point the author is making is, is that everything connected with the first covenant, the old covenant, had to be cleansed or sanctified with the blood of a sacrifice. And so he's making that link in the same way Then the new covenant had to be established by the blood of Jesus, the mediator.
0: Right. And so we are cleansed by the blood of Christ in the same way that people were cleansed by the blood in the Old Testament.
1: Yeah, the author goes into great detail here. Uh, Verse 19, he talks about uh, what Moses did. Moses proclaimed all the commandments of the law. He preached it to the people, the Ten Commandments, and then all the minor commandments besides. It says, after that it happened, then he took the blood of animals. And uh, together with water and scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and all of this and sprinkled, it says, the scroll or the book and all the people. It's very interesting. Uh, It also says uh, that he made a statement at the time, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. And then also he sprinkled with the blood the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. Now here's the problem. That never happened in the pages of the Pentateuch. You never have any account of that. It's not recorded for us. And that's a bit of a problem when you go, you go into that. So I think what we have to do is we have to say, okay, the author to Hebrews under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is giving us some information here that we didn't have any other way. And there's actually a number of I- examples of this in the New Testament. For example, uh, in the book of James, we're told that Elijah, a man just like us, prayed earnestly that it would not rain. You have no account of that in the Bible. Frankly, Elijah just pops up in 1 Kings 17. Never heard of the guy. Now, Elijah the Tishbite, who's he? And then he just gets going. It's not going to rain except at my word. And so it didn't for three and a half years. Yeah, but we weren't told that before that, he prayed that it wouldn't rain. So where did James get his information? Ah, from the Holy Spirit. Now, if you say, well, is that really true that Moses never sprinkled the the scroll or the book? Look it up. There's just no account of it. There's there's no record of it. John Owen, the Puritan uh, commentator on Hebrews, goes into great discussion on this, on this fact. So I figured if Owen's saying that he never did it, um, then it's it's true. So you look at it and you say, the author is just making a point um, and he's giving us some new information that we didn't have any other way. And, and why, why was everything sprinkled with blood? Why was the book sprinkled? I mean, think about that. What is
0: the scroll? The scroll would have been the law the given law, by God. The word of God,
1: the Bible. And he sprinkled it with blood. I mean, just focus on that for a minute. The scroll represents the inerrant, the perfect word of God still needed to be cleansed. And you're like, well, what is the author saying here? I think what he's saying is everything that touches humanity has to be cleansed. We are so sinful, we have to be, in some sense, purified. Now, don't misunderstand. We're not saying there are errors in the Bible. The author's not saying that. The Word of God is living and active. It's perfect. But still, the scroll was made, or the book was made, by human hands. The actual writing of the of the letters on the on the scroll was done by human beings. And so, in this way, it had to be cleansed or sanctified by the blood of a sacrifice. Everything has to be cleansed. We are sinners, and we need a Savior.
0: Yeah. I wonder also if it could be prefiguring Christ, showing that every promise of God, every good thing that we have has been blood-bought. We don't get any of it without the blood.
1: Yeah, I love that. I love that. I I think both of those those are true. I mean, you could think of it this way. Even all the authors of uh, Scripture, all of them, Isaiah, Jeremiah, David, all of them are sinners. And they all had to be cleansed and sanctified in some sense, by the blood of Christ, enabled therefore to speak perfect words and to write perfect letters, um, but they still needed an atoning sacrifice.
0: Right. Let's talk for another minute about the blood. Um, this really offends modern man. Uh, they they see it as some cultic ancient Near Eastern uh, you know pagan rituals, um, but the scriptures God God gives a reason and He says that the life is in the blood. And so, what is the significance of you know Jesus offering His blood, offering His life? For sinners who deserve to die? In other words, why did it take blood, the lifeblood, to purchase our redemption?
1: Well, let's just begin by asserting that it does. I mean, you look at verse 22 and it says it about as plainly as you can. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness from sins. You can't be forgiven without the shedding of blood. So, however, we feel about that, that's the decree of Almighty God. Someone has to die someone has to die. Wages of sin is death. Adam was warned. If you eat of that tree, you will die. And so the death penalty for sin was established. Wages of sin is death. The link between sin and death from the beginning. Now the author, uh, sorry, uh, Moses in Leviticus says that God said very plainly that God spoke. He said, the life of the creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for your sins. So this was an artifice, let's say. It was, a, it was a, a provision made by God in which God says, I will be satisfied with blood. Why? Because he's, he's God. He's the king. He can do that. He didn't have to. You could say, well, if I sin, what can I do that I would not die? Answer, nothing. The soul who sins will die, period. There's no atonement. There's no forgiveness. None. But God in his grace and mercy made a way. And the way is a way uh, forged by blood or made by the blood of Jesus through the the new and living ways, through the body given and the blood shed on the cross. And so he says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was something that God determined, preparing the way for his own son to have his blood shed on the cross.
0: Hmm. Do you have any final comments on these verses? Hmm.
1: I love the word cleansed. It says it required everything had to be cleansed with blood. And so I just love that, the idea of the cleansing or purifying work of Jesus. All of us are guilty. We are all defiled by our sins. And I think the more you go on in the Christian life, the more more you know that it's true. And it's so beautiful that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that cleansing, that purifying, comes through that once-for-all sacrifice done in the blood of Jesus. It's a cleansing through His blood. Very powerful.
0: Amen. Well, that was episode 22 in the book of Hebrews. Please join us next time for episode 23. We'll talk about Hebrews 9, verses 23 through 28, and how Christ's once-for-all sacrifice is sufficient. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and God bless you all.